Amen. So the main part of our story this morning is going to be the flood in Genesis 6, 7, and 8. So to start out, I thought I would read a children's book to you. This is the story of Noah's Ark, illustrated by Penn Giorgio. We have a lot of these books now because of Evangeline living in our house. She's, how old is she, 14 months now? Once you get past a year, it feels weird to me to say like 14 months, 15 months, like over a year. Anyway, here we go. I have the pictures up here because this is quite small. So here we go. God looked down to earth and saw that people were not being very nice to one another. This made God sad, but he knew of one good person, and his name was Noah. God told Noah that he was going to create a big flood to cover the earth. He told Noah to build a large ark for safety and to bring two of every animal on board. So Noah built the ark despite the other villagers who did not believe. By the way, if you go and read this, which I encourage you to do, the flood story, if you haven't read it in a while, that doesn't happen. You might think it happens because you've heard it a lot, but it doesn't. Go read it. Anyway, next page. <laughs> then he boarded the animals two by two. Noah's family also boarded the boat, and soon the rain came down. Eventually, the great ark was floating on an ocean with no land in sight, but everyone on the ark was safe. Noah set a bird free from the ark. The bird returned to the boat until one day there was dry land for it to perch on. Here comes the last page. Pop out. <laughs> when the bird did not return, Noah knew the flooding had stopped. It was safe to leave the ark. God promised Noah that he would never again flood the earth. As a sign, God created a rainbow in the sky, and everyone lived happily ever after. So, I read that in a childlike tone. I hope that wasn't condescending for you. But my point with this is, um, and this is a rhetorical question. You don't have to raise your hand. But how many of you learned that story as a child, some version like that, the abridged version, and never really revisited it? Or can't really, like it surprised you when the villagers didn't come and make fun of Noah? On the other hand, I bet a lot of you probably revisited the story later as an adult, but you were confused because God is the one who sent the flood, and a lot of people perished, and that's tough, right? Drew always gives us the hard passages, right? It is very, very hard, and, and maybe you've heard someone, you've been in a conversation with someone where they use this story, the flood story, as an excuse to be like, oh, your God is, is horrible, he's mean, and he just kills everybody because he's up there in heaven looking down on us and just being mad all the time. Richard Dawkins is a famous atheist and biologist. He wrote a book called The God Delusion, and he says this, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. He says fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. I practiced that for a while. There's a lot of big words in there. But here's the thing. As a Christian, you probably have a knee-jerk reaction against that. Like, no, that, that's not true. But do you know enough about the story of the flood to prove him wrong? Today, I hope to start us down the path where we maybe can understand why the story of the flood is in our Bibles and what's going on and why that entire quote is dead wrong. 
And Dawkins is woefully misinformed about the stories of the Bible and their intent and purpose of what they're communicating to us about our God and about our condition. So here's my proposal. The God of the Old Testament and the New Testament are the same. God is good, he is loving, and he is kind. But here's the key today. He is holy and severely protective of what he knows to be good. God is good, and he can be trusted in the midst of evil, even in the midst of the flood story. So let's get rolling. If you want to follow along in your Bibles, I will be jumping around quite a bit, and I'm also reading out of the NIV. Uh, We typically do the ESV, but I wanted to do NIV today. And we're going to start in chapter 4, but before we get there, there's quite a bit of context. Um, What I'm going to do is I'm going to look back at Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and reflect on one theme in particular, God's goodness, and, and, and see how that theme is drugged through those stories and how it comes out. So starting in Genesis 1, when I preach full-time someday, who knows when, I'm going to have a whiteboard always on stage with me, so you just get used to it. So on day one, we read that before that of creation that there's dark, chaotic waters. So there's just water everywhere. This is my representation of water. What he does then on day one is that he creates light. I like to make a joke so God can see it, but he's God. He doesn't like whatever. But on on day one, he creates light and he separates light from the dark and he defines it as good. He defines it as tov. That is the Hebrew word behind the word good. It is tov. Now on day two, what he does here is that he creates an expanse or sky dome, as I like to call it, a really rough translation. There's an expanse in the midst of the waters, and it separates the waters below from the waters above. So we have waters below, and then we have still waters above. Now here's something interesting. On day two, God does not define it as good. It's not good yet. It's not tov, because this as it stands is not set for life yet. That happens on day three. What God does on day three is he divides the waters below, separates them so that the dry ground can appear. So here's our dry ground. Here's the plains of Kansas, mountains of Colorado. That's all you need. I'm from Kansas, by the way. So here we have our vision and and our our Jewish worldview, in a sense, of of how it works. Because think, if, if you're a Hebrew, an ancient Near East person, you look up, it looks like you're in a dome. Right? So that's, that's one way that an ancient person would view the world. We, of course, in modern science, we know the globe is round and all those kind of things, but this is an ancient view of the world. Now, what happens then on days four, five, and six is that God puts life into these places that he has made. So in day five, he makes birds of the air, he makes fish of the sea, and then on day six, he creates the land animals to move around, so we got a nice cow. <laughs> and then on, he also creates humans. Every one of those days he defines as good, and when we come to humans, we find that they are tov meod, very good. Humans are the crown jewel of creation and then are supposed to take and take God's goodness, his tov life-giving goodness, and send it to the world. That's the image of God. Moving forward, we read in uh, chapter 2 that God starts to define something that's not good. He said it's not good for the man and woman, or for the man to be alone. He needs someone fit to help him. So he takes the human, divides them, makes male and female, brings them together, and that finally is good. 
chapter 3, we see that there's this tree that has the fruit which is representative of the knowledge of good and evil, or tov and ra, as it is in the Hebrew. Hebrew. So what happens then is that there's this snake that shows up. He accuses God of not having the best intentions for humans in mind, of not being fully good. And the thing that he says to the woman is, wait, did God really say you're going to die? You really can't eat from the trees? The woman says, no, we just can't eat from that one. But that plants the seed of doubt in her head, like, wait, that looks good. It looks tov. She goes over, she takes it, she sees that it is good, it is desirable to make one wise, so she eats it in a defiant act, because God said, that's the one thing you can't have yet, gives some to her husband who is there also. And here we have sin fracturing, entering the world. So God's goodness, as we've seen so far, has been only defined by God, but now humans take the ability to define good and evil on for themselves, and we introduce death to the world because we think it's good, but it's not. So the question we need to start asking, where is God? Can any good actually come from the story? Because it's not looking good so far. Maybe uh, their sons can do better. So here's chapter four. If you know the story, we get the story of Cain and Abel, the first sons of Adam and Eve. And as the story goes, Cain and Abel both bring a sacrifice and they offer it up to God. And for whatever reason, um, there's a lot of, of things that we can't talk about today just from time constraints. I encourage you to tune into the podcast, uh, join a life group. Thursday night Bible study is, is what I do a lot of this extra stuff on. But he brings the sacrifice, and for whatever reason, God looks more favorably upon Abel's than he does Cain's. And Cain gets a bit angry. But what God does in that moment, he comes to Cain and he says, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. And its desire is to rule over you, but you must rule over it. This sin, this anger that's festering inside of Cain is depicted as a beast. It's crouching at the door. But Cain, you as a human are supposed to rule over these beasts of the field. It should not rule over you. I created the animals and then humans to rule over the beasts. But now the opposite might happen if Cain gives in, which he does. And God, he, he, he gives in and he kills his brother Abel, spills the blood on the ground, and God comes to him and asks, hey, where's your brother? And that's where we get the famous passage, am I my brother's keeper? Now we're in chapter 4, verse 10. And God comes to Cain again, and he says this, the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and are driven from the ground which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. So these are the consequences that Cain now has to live with. God does not relinquish these consequences of this murder. In fact, he says that the ground will no longer yield its crops to you at all. Adam just had to work hard for it, and he would eventually get some fruit from the soil. But Cain... Cain would be a restless wanderer. He would always be wandering around trying to find food. Next, Cain said to the Lord, in verse 13, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Cain is all of a sudden worried that once he completely leaves God's presence and he's exiled because of what he's done, 
that he'll be killed. But what God does next is an act of grace. He does not want violence to continue. And so he says, but the Lord said to him in verse 15, not so if anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. You may hear the mark of Cain being some mystical, satanic kind of thing. No, it is an act of the grace of God marking Cain as protected by God. Because if someone would have come in and harmed him, they would have had vengeance visited on them seven times over. So here's what we want to see in the story so far. What we're looking, can any good come from this? Will Cain and Abel know that? That didn't work out. But even in the midst of that, God does not fully abandon Cain. He puts a barrier of protection on him. There are two sides to this coin of God's goodness. He wants to preserve life. So one side is the justice. You must live with the consequences of your actions. And you may have experienced that. If you've done something in your life that the ramifications of that sin are still with you today, you get this. You have to live with those consequences. But God has not abandoned you. On the flip side is God's love and his grace and his desire for protection and to preserve life. Because he didn't, he didn't want anyone else to murder. Cain should have been the last murderer, should have been. Continuing on in the story, can any good come from this? We meet a man called Lamech. Lamech, in verse 19 of chapter 4, we read that he marries two wives. Who in the world told him it was good to marry two wives? No one. That's bad. That is evil. But he decided it was good in his own eyes. And then he says in verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zalah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. It's a pretty arrogant guy referring to himself in the third person. But here's what he says. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. So not only has Lamech married twice as many women as he should have, killed twice as many men as Cain did, he now thinks that he's going to be protected by God two times more than Cain. Seven times seven, 77 can be translated both ways. My friends, this is ludicrous. It's, going, it's getting worse. Humans were supposed to be the ones who came in and gave God's blessing and life to the world, but it's just getting worse. Where is God? Where is his goodness? Karina and I experienced a time in our lives where we were asking the exact same questions. Around 2017, 2018, uh, we decided it was, it was finally time. We finished our master's degrees. Uh, we, we wanted to, to get pregnant and, and have, have a, 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 well, we had a daughter. We didn't tell God, hey, we want a daughter. So, But we, we wanted to get pregnant and, and add to our family. Uh, so as, as we began trying, um, after a year, we were unsuccessful. So we started to go through this process of going through doctors and seeing if, seeing if there was anything wrong with us. And in fact, there was something um, in both of us that made it very unlikely that we were going to be able to have children. And that was hard because we started to go through those tests and, and you know, starting that process of do we want medical intervention? What are we going to do? Um, and there was a time in, in the fall of 2019, of September, I remember the weekend, I got very angry with God. And I did some things that were good in my own eyes, 
And they were definitely creating conflict and tension and death truly in my own life. You see, when we experience those things, that whatever circumstance you might find yourself in, where you allow that anger to rule over you, and, and you do things that are good in your own eyes, that's not what God wants for you. So we were in that moment asking, God, what are you doing? Can, can anything good come from this? You've told me in your scripture that to have a family is a good thing, to be fruitful and multiply, and it's not happening. So God, where are you? What are you doing? Can any good actually come from this? Now, as we keep reading in the story, we read that there's a glimmer of hope. Chapter 5 is a genealogy, and Adam and Eve have a third son, Seth. Maybe Seth, third time's a charm, who knows? Um, Cain, Abel didn't work out, here's Seth. And it describes the family line of Seth. And when you get to the end, you get the 10th generation from Adam and Seth, you finally find Noah. And Noah's dad, in verse uh, 29, he named him Noah. The Hebrew means Noah, it's comfort or rest. And, and Noah's dad, Lamech, it's a different Lamech from the line of Seth, he says, he named him Noah and he said, he will comfort us from the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. So there's like this, this prophecy that maybe Noah can do it. Maybe he can trust that God is good. And so that's how chapter 5 ends. And now we come to chapter 6, which is the setup. You might have a title in your, in your Bible that says, The Flood. Mine does, in the NIV. So we're finally here. The context, as we've seen, we've been asking, can any good come from this? The humans have sinned. It's just spiraling out of control, down, down, down. But maybe Noah can rescue us and, and pull us out of here. So let's take a look at chapter 6. We'll read verses 1 through 4. When men began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal, and his days will be 120 years. Now, does this seem weird to you? In the way I've described the story so far, like, this is kind of weird. Who are the sons of God? They, they just married daughters of men? How does that work? Well, uh, chapter 4 says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Who are the Nephilim? And also afterward, when the sons of God went into the daughters of men and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. As confusing as that is, and for a long time I had questions about the Nephilim, like who in the world were they, and what did Jesus say on the road to Emmaus and his disciples? You know that story? It's like, what did you say, and who are the Nephilim? Those have been my, my two questions. Um, I won't ever know what Jesus said on the road to Emmaus, but here, I, I think I've kind of figured out what the Nephilim, but what you need to know is there's a really, really cool Hebrew literary feature that pits two stories together, and here's what it is. In verse 2 of this, we read that the sons of God saw the daughters of men. The Hebrew behind the word saw is ra'ah, so they saw that the daughters of men were tov, they were good. Here it says they were beautiful. Your, your ESV might say attractive. It's all the same thing. The daughters of men were tov. They were good. They were ra'ah, that they were tov, and so they lakach. They took them for themselves. The translations here say that they married them, but the Hebrew behind that is that they took. They lakach. Eve, in the garden, the woman, ra'ah, she saw that the fruit was tov, and she lakach. 
these two stories are linked together by these three Hebrew words that pit the same narratives together. And what we're supposed to see is from the Garden of Eden, that moment that sin was introduced has now infected everything, including the heavens, including where the sons of God, whoever they are, those heavenly spiritual creatures, where they reside, sin has infected everything that God has created. And so the the result of these unholy unions resulted in the Nephilim. They were great warriors. Nephilim means the fallen ones. They, They were slain in battle and remembered for the great many people that they had killed. Violence is still here. Yeah, we have this glimmer of hope back here at the end of chapter 5 in Noah, but chapter 6, it's like we're getting to the edge of the cliff and we're about to fall off and realize that nothing can be done. And in fact, that's what happens in the next verse. Chapter 6, verse 5 says, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Only evil all the time. Every inclination was only evil. There was no hope for these humans. So growing up on a Kansas wheat farm every summer after harvest, we would go back and, and, and pick a couple fields to burn because they were, they were so weedy. Um, and so when you have weeds, it would prevent the wheat from growing because it would steal nutrients and, and kind of push the seeds out. And you could try and till it up to kill the weeds, but invariably next season, the seeds from those weeds would grow again, and you wouldn't have as good of a wheat crop as you did. So what we do to cleanse that field of weeds is that we would burn it. Okay? So you, what you do is you, you till around the edge to create a little bit of a firewall, choose a non-windy day, and then you could just light a match, but that's no fun. Um, if you're a farmer in Kansas, and my dad is probably going to see this at some point, a farmer like my dad, you get a propane tank that attaches to a grill, stick a hose on it, light the end, put it on your four-wheeler, and just drive lighting <laughs> fire behind you. That's what we do out in the sticks of Kansas. So, but the idea is that, that this field is not good for, for the wheat to grow, right? We want to get good wheat reap that harvest, and not have any weeds in there. So we, we burn it, we cleanse it. Um, also, after we got married, Karina and I moved to Manhattan, Kansas, where Kansas State University is. And that was more rolling hill country. It's a place called the Flint Hills, and it was a lot more pasture land. It wasn't as tall as your hills here, um, but that's God's country out there. It's just beautiful rolling hills. And uh, what they would do, ranchers would do, is their pastures sometimes would get too grown over with dead grass, And that dead grass created a barrier where good grass couldn't take root and then grow up through that that mass of dead stuff. And so they would burn their pastures as well. And burning those pastures was something that happened naturally before we we settled Kansas. Like lightning strikes and whatever would always burn the prairies as well. And so it wasn't something like that had never been done before. It's good and healthy for those pastures to burn. Because not three, four, five months after those pastures were burned beautiful, luscious green grass was able to take root, grow up, and the cattle were ready to come back in and graze. And it was good. Now, I can talk about burning wheat fields and pastures all I want, but what happens here because of the evil of humanity, God does not use fire, but he uses water 
to completely cover and destroy the earth and cleanse the evil. The humans had, had approached the cliff and they had gone over. There was no hope for them to, to have any good other than Noah because he still sticks around. There was no hope. So God cleansed the earth through water. And I can talk about that all I want, but the fact is that these are human lives that were lost. And don't think that God is up far away in heaven like Richard Dawkins thinks, and he's looking down and he's just angry and he has no, he doesn't care about it at all. What we read next is the emotion of God. He feels it. He knows what he has to do, but he doesn't like it. Verse 6 of chapter 6 says, The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. God feels this in his heart, and it pains him. His own creation, he knows what has to be done. It must be cleansed in order for good, life-giving goodness to flourish once more. But he still feels the impact of what he has to do. Now, hopefully, things have been clear enough that this is not something that God had ever preordained to do. He much would have rather had it turn out good, but he doesn't change human decisions in order to, bring, to force something. And actually, he, he grieves. As we just read, he is extremely sad, extremely grieved, and sorry. And what comes next in verse 8 jars you awake. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Remember Noah? We read about him at the end of verse 5. Here he is. Maybe, no, maybe Noah's the one who can finally do it. So here we are. We're at the flood, finally. And we're going to gloss over a couple passages here and there. And um, we already read the children's book. That's the, the general plot of, of what happens. But I'll, I'll come through here and, and find a few things um, that are very essential for the theme of God's goodness, which we read here in the flood. So we'll start and we'll jump in in chapter 7, verses 11 and 12. And it's actually going to relate back here to um, what I drew at the beginning in the creation so chapter 7, verses 11 and 12 says this. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all of the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. So what we see here, and, and again, in order to understand it, we have to think like an ancient Near East person. When you look up and you see the sky dome, sometimes rain falls from there. So there must be hinges up there that can open up when God wants to and he sends rain. There's also springs that, that bubble up from the ground because we can get fresh water from there. And it seems like there's an inexhaustible source of that. Remember, they didn't really understand the water cycle as we do. Like rain falls, evaporates, condenses, falls. Did I get that right, Karina? Good. She's a science teacher, so I need to make sure. So um, that's the, the water cycle. An ancient Near East person would not have understood that. They just know that ground pops up and or, uh, water pops up and sometimes rain falls. So what we read here in verse 11 is that on that day, all of the springs of the great deep burst forth. 
So all this water that was down here bubbled up and burst forth and completely covered the ground. It's as though the ground is erased. The next phrase says that the floodgates of the heavens were opened. It's as though the sky dome is completely gone. And what we have is the waters above above, and the waters below come crashing back together in a story of de-creation. God removes his protective barriers, and the chaotic, dark, watery part that we, we read about in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 all of a sudden are present again, and we have an uncreated state. And so that's what happens here. The flood, at its core, is a decreation story. It reverses what happens in days one, two, three, four, five, and six. And so what is to be done? Can any good come from this? Is God really good? Chapter eight, verse one reads, but God, one time I gave a devotional about the word but in the Bible, B-U-T, because so much of the gospel rides on that turnaround. Ephesians two says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy, Enter the gospel, Jesus, uh, giving us the ability to live for God's goodness. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. You remember what we read in Genesis 1 verse 2? That there was a spirit of God hovering over the waters. The Hebrew word for spirit is ruach. And the word for wind in this passage is ruach. Not only that, but we read that the floodgates of the heavens were closed and that the water receded. So God puts back the sky dome and sends a wind, a ruach, over the water so that the mountains and the plains of Kansas would be restored. And the world goes back to a created state. What we see is that the evil of humanity caused the world to cave in on itself. But God remembered Noah And he protected this floating ark the entire time with the animals and one family. And what we read then going on in chapter 9 and 10 is that the ark comes to rest on the mountains of Ararat. It's at a high place. The higher you are, the closer you are to God. At least in the biblical story, not necessarily in the Colorado mountains. But the higher you are, the closer you are to the presence of God. So he's up there on a mountain. He comes out. He plants a vineyard. And then there's also a story, a lot more to it than this, but he's naked in a tent. So we have a man who is in a garden, okay, there's vines, there's a vineyard there, and he's naked. Have you heard this before? Back in chapter 2, the woman and the man were in the garden, and they were naked, and they were unashamed. This is a second creation story. It is erased, it is put back, there's a new Adam and there's a new Eden ready for humans to try again. God has hit the reset button on everything, including his creation and humanity. So God, in the midst of a horrible calamity, When the very goodness of God was threatened by the evil of humanity, he does this thing. He resets, he chooses a new Adam in Noah, makes a new Garden of Eden, and gives humans this second chance so that life and God's tov, his goodness, 
can flourish again. Just like those pastures were burned, new grass can sprout up, the wheat fields burned up, new good grain can be reaped. This is what happens here. And this is why I say that God is good and he can be trusted in the midst of evil. So as we try to figure out how to like, actually trust in God's goodness, a very popular verse is in Romans 8.28. And it's one of those coffee cup verses that we like to take and, and slap on a coffee cup because it makes us feel warm and runny inside. Sometimes, though, it's just the first half, which I see it on the screens there. It reads, and we know that in all things, God works for, the, for good. That's kind of the warm and runny part. But we forget the second half, which says, for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So there's a question there. If you choose to do what is good in your own eyes, does that apply to you? That's a tough question because God works for the good of those who love him. We read over in the flood story that the humans had gone too far and there was no hope for them and so something had to be done in order for life to be remained. Because here's the thing, God does not overrule human faculty and decision making. If you want to define good and evil on your own terms, he will allow you to do that. But the story of the Bible, the story of human history is story after story after story of people doing that, doing what is good in your own eyes, but it leads to death and it leads to hardship and struggle. But ultimately, if we can trust in God's goodness, that is when he gives us life. And it might not feel like it's life right now because we still live in this world that is, that is hampered by human evil. But the ultimate good we know, of course, comes when Jesus returns and, and remakes this whole world again. We know that is our hope as Christians, that when we trust in God for his goodness, it might not turn out fully good now, but our eternity end date is supremely tov supremely good. There's this thread woven through every story of the Bible that God is there. He's working behind the scenes of, for good. By the end of Genesis, we see Joseph declaring that you meant these things for evil, but God meant them for good so that we can have life as a family. We'll get, we'll get there later. So what circumstances are you in like Karina and I experienced, that caused me, at least, to take matters into my own hands and try to do what was good in my own eyes. What is that for you? To finish our story, because you know the end, we have a daughter, but um, as we started going to those fertility doctors, we walked into one, and we thought it was more of a consultation, uh, but those doctors, they have one job to get you pregnant, and they're very good at it. And so they, we walk in, and they, they describe all the ways that that, that can happen, and, and we're like, okay, hold on, wait a second, let's pause and, and, and just think about it. Because at that moment, it was, it was 20, the end of 2019 or so, or no, it was the beginning of 2020 before the pandemic hit. And at that point, we were trying to decide whether or not we were going to move here to Denver um, so that I could attend Denver Seminary and potentially do this every week. Um, and so we were like, do we want to, to get pregnant and have this, have like two massive changes go on? We were, I don't think so. But also, uh, I, we credit God for this because Karina ha had a dream that seemed to say, hold on, don't get medical procedures. And so we, we wrestled with that for a little bit and, and we decided not to. So we went into that, that, that doctor meeting and was like, hold on, we're, we're going to think about it. 
But then we went away and decided, no, we're just going to, if God wants to do it, he'll, he'll do it. And then God's hilarious because he did. <laughs> so not only did we move, not only did we like rent our house, uh, not only did we live with our in-laws in the basement, uh, in the studio apartment, which they graciously uh, built an extra room, um, but we were going down to one income. I was going to have to study. We were going to have to take care of this child. Like, when, when, when Karina came down and showed me that pregnancy test, I, like, freaked out. Like, yes, awesome. And then every parent experiences, oh, shoot. <laughs> Here we go. Like, it's actually, that's why they give you nine months. That's my theory. It takes that long. <laughs> takes that long for you to get ready for it. So the point is this, I don't share this story to, to say, like, I've got it all figured out, but I wanted to share this story with you because there's a time in our lives where, where we, felt, we felt that the goodness of God wasn't with us. And it was really hard because it was a blessing, and it was a good thing that we wanted, but he wasn't giving it to us. And we had to wrestle with that. Now, we're on the other side, and, and, and I can tell that story as a testimony of the goodness of God but some of you might be in those places. Some of you might be in that moment where you're wondering, where is the goodness of God and why are these things happening to me? But hopefully I've shown you from the story of the flood that God is good. And he can be trusted in the midst of evil, in whatever circumstance that you find yourself in.